Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, Tom Fox and Matt Kelly take a look at the recent hiring of Matthew Miner to be the chief compliance officer at Walmart Corporation. We use this as a starting point for an exploration of who should be hired as a chief compliance officer. Do you want a high-profile ex-regulator or do you want a nuts-and-bolts compliance professional or a compliance practitioner in the CCO role? Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we're going to take up, uh, as a starting point, a blog post Matt wrote last week now entitled Walmart Names XDOJ Boss CCO. Matt, first of all, welcome back. And what uh, initially caught your eye about this story? Uh, Hi, Tom. And I mean, of course, what caught my eye about this was that it's Walmart, one of the largest businesses in the world. And for compliance officers, the person who runs ethics and compliance at Walmart is probably one of the most high profile jobs in this profession. So Walmart could have named a houseplant to be CCO, and that would have been, well, it still would have been news if they named a houseplant, I guess. But they actually had named uh, Matt Miner to be their next global chief ethics and compliance officer. And Matt Miner is the former deputy associate, deputy assistant attorney general for the criminal division during the Trump administration. He served there for, I believe, about 18 months or so from uh, early 2018 until January of 2020. So, okay, not quite two years that uh, Matt Miner was in the Justice Department. He clearly was not a senior, senior person in DOJ, but he was within spitting distance of the senior, senior people. Um, And then he went to work for Morgan Lewis, the law firm, from January 2020 until his hiring at Walmart last week. Uh, And as I understand Matt Miner's biography, he actually had spent many years prior to working at the DOJ, also working at Morgan Lewis, the law firm. And earlier in his career, he had other federal prosecutor experience, Uh, but he has not had any corporate experience, uh, to my understanding, right up until he took the Walmart job. But, you know, Walmart's a high profile company. It has a very storied history with FCPA trouble and all sorts of other compliance challenges. And Matt Miner did a lot at the Justice Department while he was there. We can talk about that, too. So that's what grabbed my attention is just it's Walmart. The person who runs compliance at Walmart is a big deal to our industry, period. I'd like to really first, Matt, perhaps explore the uh, the position at Walmart, which I think you correctly identified as one of the most high profile, but is do you really want to bring in a big name ex DOJ star, ex big law star, uh, who may or may not be well versed in the nuts and bolts of compliance, or do you want to bring in a more traditional CCO type who's sort of come up through the ranks and really can not only have a strategic vision 
but also a tactical vision and get down and, and talk compliance with literally everyone in the company and, and a regulator if needed. Are those really two different types of chief compliance officers or am I uh, off base on that? No, I, I think that's a valid point to raise. And you know, the question would be, how does that idea manifest specifically at Walmart, which is such a gigantic business? Uh, I think at many smaller businesses, you might think hard about how do we find a chief compliance officer who both A, has the strategic vision to make the compliance function worthwhile to the whole enterprise? Can he or she talk with regulators as well? And can that person do the tactical stuff of building a good due diligence program and building a a training program or something like that? At a smaller company, it's very easy to see how you probably only have so many resources and the CCO has to be able to fill both of those roles. That's not the case at Walmart. Uh, I don't know exactly how many compliance executives work at Walmart, but I believe so. Walmart has 2.3 million employees in total, and I believe it has at least 2,000 people who somehow work in ethics and compliance and anti-corruption in Walmart. So the the compliance function within Walmart is a small business unto itself and not even maybe a small business. 2000 is a large organization by any stripe. Um, So I could even see that maybe at Walmart, you have a chief compliance officer who handles the big strategic uh, questions for building and use it, putting the program to work with a deputy who might be more immersed in the tactics of actually operating the compliance program day to day. Certainly at a business of Walmart size, you would have the resources to divide those two roles into two separate people. It is worth noting, however, to the best of my knowledge, right now, the number two ethics and compliance job at Walmart is also vacant. Uh, The former head of compliance at Walmart was Daniel Trujillo. He left in April. And then shortly thereafter, uh, David Searle, who had been the international ethics and compliance officer and is essentially the the second in command in the compliance function. David Searle also left Walmart. So they had the numbered one and two roles in ethics and compliance vacant at Walmart right now. Who's in charge of the tactical stuff? I don't know enough about Walmart to say. Uh, Who, by the way, would be um, Matt Miner's boss? That would be Rachel Brand. She is the global chief legal officer at Walmart, and she also is an ex-DOJ person. We can talk about that maybe as well. But that's who's who, what kind of experience makes sense. Um, we should still circle back to why Matt Miner might be a good fit for Walmart anyways, given what he has done in corporate law and at the Trump administration with the evaluation guidelines for ethics and compliance programs, um, since basically he wrote them. And now he will be putting them into practice at one of the largest businesses in the world. I can see the sense in that, too. So I am not opposed to Matt Miner being named head of compliance at Walmart anyways. It's just it's a very intriguing um, personnel selection, and it's worth thinking about given its high profile in the industry. Matt, in your experience, would you say that it is, I don't know if typical is the right word, but if you uh, are in uh, a regulatory situation where either the regulator, you're in dialogue with the regulators or you, or you think the regulators might come knocking uh, wouldn't you really want to have uh, some high-profile ex-regulatory or ex-prosecutorial type uh, in that situation? 
I mean, it depends on your motives. And if your motives are pure of heart, that you want the best and most intelligent people, then yes. Uh, I know that people often talk about the revolving door between corporate America and regulatory world and back and forth, and that there is some sinister design to that revolving door. And I have no doubt that that happens sometimes. And maybe we could explore some other examples where they might be a bit more sketchy. But on the other hand, Tom, I don't know about you, but I hear all the time about corporate officers who complain that government prosecutors and regulators have no understanding of the corporate world and that these two sides exist with this chasm between them and they just don't understand the perspective of the other. Well, in that case, if you want to close that chasm, if you want regulatory compliance executives who have a good sense of how regulators think, and you want regulators who have a good sense of what corporate executives really labor under for pressures in the daily world, well, that implies that there is some degree of crossing back and forth, and that's a revolving door, too. So if you're looking for some sort of sinister objective here, I'm going to pay a boatload of money to an ex-regulator to help me do a favor and write regulations that are nice for me. I can't say I like that. On the other hand, if you are looking for an ex-regulator who knows how businesses should try to work and who has a breadth of experience about here's how I would counsel one company, here's how I would do it if I were in charge, here's how I did it when I was an enforcer on the other side – There's not necessarily anything wrong with trying to hire the best and the brightest. And if everybody does that, that includes regulators and corporations, eventually you're going to get a lot of revolving door types. And in those cases, I'm not sure the revolving door is really something we need to get our underwear in a twist over. We have, I don't know, I'm not sure we have ever explored the revolving door, but You had a great phrase which struck me about your blog post, which was the three-point pivot. Could you tell us uh, a little bit about that phrase? Well, the the exact phrase is the three-point turn, and uh, I made that because really Matt Miner went from being a partner at a big corporate law firm to working at a regulator uh, at the Justice Department and then going back to corporate America after a short stint back in big law. But so it really, it isn't so much a revolving door, which just implies only back and forth one, two. There's this third angle here, hence the three point turn of big advisory firm, whether that is a big four accounting firm and the PCAOB and maybe being a CFO or a law firm or cybersecurity firm or whatnot, then you go to a relevant regulator and then you fill that executive role at some large corporation. That's what Matt Miner did. Um, I'm not necessarily sure I'm upset about that. I mean, Matt Miner is a very accomplished person. He has given a lot of thought to how corporate compliance programs should work. Um, I'm curious to see how he fares at Walmart because he's given a lot of thought to how they work while he was at a law firm. And while he was at the Justice Department, he has not given a lot of thought to how they work while he's at a big company. Now, this is a big chance to put all of his ideas to work at a big company. But so far, all of his ideas about the evaluation guidelines for corporate compliance programs, like they make a lot of sense. And if you go back and you read a lot of Matt Miner's speeches while he was at the Justice Department and the comments he's made at various forums and whatnot, 
most of his comments were very sensible and thoughtful. And, you know, you can't necessarily say that just because he worked from big law and then went to justice to corporate America, I'm still trying to figure out, okay, how's that bad? Who is hurting? Who is suffering from that? And I don't know who is. Uh, Tom, if you can find anybody who's suffering harm because of that career path, please let me know. I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with what he's been doing. Well, Matt, what really struck me is is not so much whether that's right or wrong, but sort of the model you've laid out. Yeah, because I really wanted to take that model you laid out, um, uh, the three point turn and use it perhaps with some other former regulators uh, who were also come out of either big law or a consulting firm. Uh, go back into the government or go into the government and then come out into the corporate world. And and I really wanted to use it around the example of Brian Brooks, who is uh-huh. now the former CEO at Beyond.us, where uh, he resigned just three months into the job. Uh, he, uh, uh, Beyond, I think, is one of the cryptocurrency uh, companies that regulators are looking at, and they hired the former um, I believe he was former uh, acting controller of the currency yes. under the uh, le- end of the Trump administration. And that's a very high profile, very high job uh, in uh, Treasury. And he goes to Bionce, apparently, or I would have thought it would be to try to bring them into some type of compliance so that they could go public in the U.S. and then basically do to uh, differences with the owner, a uh, Chinese gentleman whose name I won't even try to pronounce, uh, he leaves after three months. And so it would, would it appear that the cryptocurrency world is going to try to utilize the three-point turn to bring themselves within the favors of regulators? We're going to have a message from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Brian Brooks because I had mentioned before that I could think of examples that are slightly more sketchy and cloudy than uh, Matt Miner. Well, at the top of my list is Brian Brooks. So I, I'll give you a more fulsome picture of Brian Brooks' work history is that for before he went to work for the Trump administration, he was the chief legal officer of a different cryptocurrency exchange, Coinbase. Then he became off, uh, director of the Office of Comptroller of the Currency, which is like the chief regulator for community banks in a very influential position that is both policy setting and enforcement. Uh, he stayed there for, I believe, three years, 2018, 19, and 2020. Brian Brooks ran OCC. I think he left in mid-2020. Uh, then he goes to Binance U.S., which is the U.S. operation of Binance the sketchy cryptocurrency, whatever it is for, I, I think it's a cryptocurrency exchange. It was originally started in China. Then it moved to Japan. Now it's allegedly in Singapore. But if you talk to the founder of Binance, he's going to say, we don't even have a headquarters because we're so avant-garde, which basically is fancy talk for saying we're trying to stay ahead of every regulator around the world who's trying to jump on us. 
which is the case with Binance. It has been banned in the UK. It is not actually allowed to operate in the United States. Binance US is not directly affiliated with Binance, the corporate parent. (coughs) And now German regulators are also looking at Binance and probably are going to kick it out of that country too. Uh, And so along comes Brian Brooks, who went from, uh, I guess, uh, crypto industry to crypto regulator. While he was at OCC, he adopted all sorts of very generous postures trying to encourage fintech firms and crypto in particular. Uh, And then after that, he left. And now, lo and behold, he went back to a crypto firm where he was going to wind up trying to run Binance US. Apparently, that didn't work because he bails after three months. Why? We don't know. What is Brian Brooks going to do next? I'm not sure. But, Tom, getting back to your original question, the three-point model, I don't even think it applies here because, really, Brian Brooks only did two points. He just went from industry to regulator back to industry, and I don't know what he's going to do next. But I also had been thinking the key distinction between what Matt Miner and people like him have done is that they went from big law and regulation to corporate. Brooks went from corporate into a policy setting role in government. And that strikes me as like you might have a bit more conflict of interest there. If you know you have a specific industry that you really know very well and now you can set policy over it, um, could you do something that is beneficial to former business associates and whatnot? I understand that people who come from consulting firms in the government also have that risk, but when you're going strictly from directly from a corporate role to a regulator role and then back to a corporate role, that seems like you have a greater temptation while you're in government to gear up policy to benefit a specific industry. And I'm not necessarily sure that the same sort of pressures and urgency and conflicts and the appearance of conflict, I don't think they exist quite as much when you're going from a law firm to a regulator to a general counsel or a chief compliance officer role. It just doesn't strike me as much. Maybe I'm wrong. And if people listening think I'm wrong, by all means, email me and tell me I'm wrong. But you know, there, so Brian Brooks would be one. Um, another person that is on my mind when I think about the three-point turn and the revolving door is Dan Gallagher. So Dan Gallagher was a Republican member of the Securities and Exchange Commission during the Trump administration and the Obama administration. Uh, Gallagher stepped down from the SEC. Then he took over as top legal officer at Robinhood. That is that fintech firm that got into all sorts of trouble uh, with day traders and meme stocks earlier this year. Robinhood is generally empowering meme stock trading. Uh, And Robinhood then had a $70 million settlement it made with FINRA earlier this year that, Tom, I think you and I talked about in a prior podcast. Uh, And then the day after that settlement, uh, they filed for an IPO on the SEC or on the the New York Stock Exchange. But and meanwhile, Gallagher, for all of his services there, he's making $30 million from Robinhood. That's total compensation, including stock options and stock grants and whatnot and salary. But. He is making far more money in the private sector than he ever would have in government. And I suspect much more than he would have even just as a mere big law partner where you might only make a million or two million a year as opposed to 30 million with Robin Hood. So there's a couple of other examples. If we want to talk about uh, icky revolving door three point turn arrangements, we can do that. But I still just come back to I don't think Matt Miner fits that profile. 
So uh, in the Department of Justice, uh, Matt, uh, political appointees cannot sit across the table from their former colleagues for two years. Yeah. And at the level of um, the FCPA unit, for instance, which are career prosecutors, uh, they can't do that for one year. Do you think that is enough protection or for a role like Matthew Minor or Brian Brooks had uh, his in short, short tenure, uh, would you advocate uh, a different rule? Um, I go back and forth on that. And we should note that Matt Minor did leave. Uh, he left the Justice Department at the beginning of 2020. And it is now, what, 18 or 20 months after that. So his one year term or cooling off period has already expired. Uh, yes, we should also remember that Walmart had a large FCPA settlement that came about during the Trump administration. So I assume Matt Minor at least knew about that, even if he was not directly involved in it. I suspect he probably was involved in it as well. Although I went back and looked at the original press release from the department announcing Walmart's FCPA settlement. Matt Minor was not quoted in it. Um, but, you know, any sort of conflict there that he worked on the Walmart settlement, now he's representing Walmart in a compliance capacity. Is that a conflict? Under the law, no, it's not, because his cooling off period has cooled and, and concluded. Um, I wonder more about what is the nature of your job when you are in government? And is it more of a policy setting role or is it an enforcement role? And to my thinking, if it is an enforcement role, we should uh, if it's a policy setting role, we should think more about what are the proper cooling off periods. Um, and I, I don't know what the proper cooling off period would be. But say, for example, if you are a senior federal prosecutor at the Justice Department or a bank examiner at the FDIC or the Fed, you're not really setting policy where you could shape an industry's outcome for years and years to come. So sure, a one-year cooling off period, and then perhaps longer for you can't represent as a defense attorney, somebody you were prosecuting or examining when you were on government service. I could see discussions about that, but you know, you're not setting far-reaching policy. Now, Matt Miner is a bit of an interesting case because he did set some far-reaching policy. He came out with the corporate uh, evaluation, corporate compliance evaluation guidelines. Um, he didn't, I think, have he didn't enact sweeping policy like deciding to create the uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy that came from Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general. The deputy AGs have far more policy setting power than a, a deputy assistant AG for the criminal division. So I could see a longer cooling off period for more senior people. I don't I don't actually know what the correct descriptor would be for Matt Minor. I said he was a fairly senior person in the Justice Department, which I think is accurate. Um, he wasn't a minor league person in the department by any means, but he wasn't the deputy AG. He wasn't the AG. Uh, he wasn't the associate attorney general. He was, I don't know, number six or seven on the picking order. You know, you'd have to break out the org chart to figure it out. So I don't know what the right answer is, but I think a key question there would be, do you enforce cases or do you set policy? And from that answer, then we could maybe derive what is an appro appropriate cooling off period. And I don't know what that period would be. Well, Matt, it's certainly an interesting question. And uh, I really become more intrigued after reading your blog post and then thinking about 
some of these examples in the cryptocurrency world uh, going forward. So perhaps we'll have an opportunity to revisit this. Uh, I suspect we probably will. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I've linked to Matt's article in our show notes, so check that out. It's a fascinating case. I'll be writing about it shortly as well. I hope you'll join us again next week where Matt and I take another deep dive, literally going into the compliance weeds for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I also hope you will check out our latest podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, the ESG Report. The ESG Report takes a deep dive into ESG from the compliance perspective. It's available on the Compliance Podcast Network, or you can subscribe and have it delivered directly to your inbox by going to the FCPA Compliance Report. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll join us again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.